The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Thank you for joining us today as we come together and circle around the Word of God. If you've been paying close attention during this coronavirus collection, then you may have noticed there's a thematic connection between all of these sermons that have been preached over the last couple of months. In particular, I'm in the process of preaching six sermons regarding walking. Walking with the King, 1 Samuel chapter 8, specifically in regards to what it looks like to walk under God's authority. Walking in the truth, we considered from 3 John. We consider what it looks like for a Christian to walk in the truth. In uh, the third week, we talked about walking in wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of these things God will bring you into judgment. And we talked about walking not just with a worldly perspective, but knowing God is there, God is our judge, and living for Him. So walking in wisdom. Fourth, we talked about walking in the light. Last week, we considered 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, walking before the face of God, walking quorum Deo. Today, we are going to be talking about walking with Jesus. In particular, I'm going to be focusing in on the doctrine of union with Christ. Much of what I'm going to say today, I'm actually borrowing from a sermon that I preached at our Rooted in Christ conference on Christology all the way back in 2016, but our church was much smaller then, and most of you who were in our church weren't even able to attend that Rooted in Christ, so I expect that this will actually be new for most of you, and for those of you who did hear any of this content before, I'm assuming if you're like most people, by now you've forgotten it. Next week, we're going to move forward and we will talk about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, walking in a worthy manner, a manner worthy of God. So let me, before we dive in, let me pray that God would give us direction and wisdom and guidance today. Our Father in heaven, it is a delight and a joy and an honor that we can hear your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though we are physically apart, you allow us to hear the Word of God together. Lord, I pray that you would give us the opportunity now to have wisdom by your Holy Spirit. Give us the ability to hear with ears that are given and uh, donated by you, delivered by your Spirit, that our ears would be opened so that we might hear and respond rightly to your Word. God, I ask that right now for those who know you, uh, there would be a deep encouragement from knowing this truth, that there would be a conviction from knowing this truth, that there would be a reality in their minds that they are forever connected to and united with Jesus. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would help them to feel empty and that they would recognize that they are lacking in this area. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Epidemiology. You've probably heard this word in increasing frequency over the last few months. Epidemiology is, according to the dictionary, the branch of medicine which deals with the incidence, distribution, and possible control of diseases and other factors relating to health. However, there was a time when people had no clue how disease was spread. They didn't know because they didn't even understand the existence of germs. 
The first mention of germs that we have in history actually comes from about 400 BC when it was argued by Thucydides that there was a plague in Athens caused by what he called invisible seeds in the air. Flash forward more than 2,000 years to 1720, Richard Bradley theorized that the plague and all its, quote, pestilential distempers were caused by poisonous insects, which he described as living creatures viewable only with the help of microscopes. And during his life, he was criticized and roundly mocked by those in the scientific community. They thought he was insane for believing in the existence of germs, microscopic bacteria and germs. Jump forward again, another 126 years, and we arrive at the Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Similwise, who I consider to be the father of modern hand washing. He's the one who discovered the disease was being transmitted in his hospital because doctors were not using good hygiene. They had a disturbingly high rate of women who were dying during childbirth. And Ignaz is the one who discovered that this was due to the fact that these doctors were using cadavers to train their students about the physical human body, and then they were walking down the hallway to a different wing of the same hospital and delivering babies without ever having washed their hands, leading to many mothers dying and even many children dying as they are transmitting disease from dead corpses. And now we have the amazing ability to zoom in with microscopes and we can see germs. We can study cells. We can study the most minute and tiny details of what God has put on this planet. The most powerful microscope in the world has a resolution of one ten millionth of a millimeter. That's right, one ten millionth of a millimeter. And what scientists continue to learn is that even things that seem so tiny that they might be insignificant are anything but. God created every single cell and molecule and atom, and they are all astonishingly intricate. There are occasions in the life of a Christian where we look at a particular Bible verse or a particular passage or a particular doctrine or theological point of view, and we think that they're just so simple, it doesn't really warrant our attention. They're so small, we just breeze past them. It doesn't even seem like there's anything really there. But what you will discover as we fix our attention on that aspect of God, we are blown away by the immense depth that is to be found there. Today, we're going to be considering just such a doctrine, one that should leave us on our knees in awe of God, and that doctrine is union with Christ. The way that we're going to go about scratching the surface of this immense and inexhaustible well of truth is to first define union with Christ, and then I will attempt to apply union with Christ. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Bible Theology defines doctrine, the doctrine of the union with Christ that we share in this way. They say, according to the New Testament, the religious experience of the earliest Christians was derived from and dependent upon Christ. Christian experience is more than an imitation of the life and teaching of Jesus. It is the present experience of the risen Christ indwelling the believer's heart by the Holy Spirit. Here's the Caleb Bunch simplified version. I would argue that this is basically just telling you Christ joins himself to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
or as theologian Marcus Peter Johnson succinctly puts it, faith justifies only insofar as it brings us into personal, intimate union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ is all over our New Testament. You can hardly go a single page without coming across dozens of examples of it. In Paul's epistles alone, there are over 200 examples of this teaching, which led Scottish theologian James Stewart to say, the heart of Paul's religion is union with Christ. Nearly every single time, the New Testament uses the phrase in Christ or in him or with Christ, it is referring to this doctrine of union with Christ. We are made one with him. These phrases, these things like in Christ or with Christ, these are like cells or atoms. They are small. They are simple looking. And they are often completely overlooked when we read our Bibles. But as we zoom in with the microscope, we will see that this indeed, as John Murray called it, is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Before moving ahead any further, allow me to clarify what I am not saying. I am not saying that being made one with Christ has made us into Christ. That would be self-idolatry. We do not cease to be us. We do not become God. Union with Christ is beautifully depicted for us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 32, which says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, we usually use this verse to speak to the topic of marriage, because it speaks about marriage. Ray and Rebecca, I just used this as a text that I preached at your wedding just before the coronavirus hit. But consider the actual argument that Paul is making. He does speak about marriage, but the point is not about marriage. The point he is making is about the relationship Jesus has to his church. A man and a woman who are married become one flesh, yet before God they remain two individuals. When they are judged, they are not going to be judged as a unit, but as individuals. The faith of the husband cannot save the wife, nor would the lack of faith in the husband result in the condemnation of a believing wife. Both of them must stand before the judgment as an individual responsible for their own life. So in a very real way, married people are one flesh, yet they retain their own identities. Now, although this passage is about marriage, it is primarily about the mysterious union that Christ has with the church. Christ nourishes and he cherishes the church because the church is his own body. He joins us together with him to the point that he refers to us as his own flesh, as it were. The very institution of marriage was created to display to us that the union that we have with Christ is the same that Christ has with the church. So when we get saved, we do not become Christ any more than I became Ashley when I got married to her. Yet in a very real and mysterious sense, we are made one with him. In order to explain this, I'm going to borrow some structure from theologia, theologian Anthony Hokema. 
he shows eight different ways that union with Christ is played out in our salvation. First, he says that we are initially united with Christ in regeneration. Here we read Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Did you catch it there? We have been made alive together with Christ. That is union with Christ. This does not mean that we are made like Christ. No, it means that we are made together with him. God has united us to Christ, and, and he has done this by way of regeneration. Secondly, we appropriate, uh, we appropriate and continue to live out this union through faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Three occasions here we see these phrases of union with Christ. Faith does not make us friends with God. I mean, it does that, but it does more than that. God uses our faith to literally unite us to Christ to the extent that it would say that Christ lives in me. Marcus Johnson explains this well when he says, The reformers never meant that faith is saving because one believes, but rather faith is saving because of whom one receives through faith. Now, I want to pause for a moment and note that union with Christ is spoken about in two distinct ways. First and most commonly, it is talking about it in terms of us being in Christ. But occasionally, like here, we see that it is Christ in us. In the last 100 years or so, there is a saying that has become common in Christian circles, especially in children's ministries. It's the phrase, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. And there are many problems with the way that this has been used and abused both in children's ministry and in evangelism. Primarily, I would say, starting with the Second Great Awakening. It has, in my estimation, been the cause of many false conversions. However, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. The notion of Christ living in us is vital to the Christian faith. Colossians 1.27 puts it this way, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The only hope we ever have to experience the glory of Christ living in us, or, or the only hope we ever have to experience glory is if Christ is living in us. As we will see throughout the rest of this sermon, Scripture speaks of union with Christ in both of these ways, me in Christ and Christ in me. Sometimes it does so in the same sentences, particularly in the writings of John. And you might say, well, that's illogical. That's not how physics works. No, it's, it's not illogical. It's mysterious. Now, we have a faith that is not contrary to reason, yet it does transcend human reason. Let me give you some examples. Uh, as Pastor Mike has taught in the past here at RGF, when preaching about the Trinity, he has said, God is one what and three who's. That's the Trinity. It's mysterious. When speaking of the hypostatic union, it is the reality that Jesus had two natures. He was fully God, 100% God, and fully man, 
100% man. That's what we call the hypostatic union. That is mysterious. We believe that God is fully sovereign, 100% in control of all things, that he has called out the end from the beginning, as the word says. Yet we also believe that man is fully responsible for his actions. It's mysterious. We live in the tension of all of these mysteries and many more as Christians, but they hold true. One of the dangers of the modern church is that we are so nervous that anything that sounds mysterious might push us into the realm of mysticism or the hyper-charismatic movement, when in reality, this is and always has been deeply central to the Christian religion. So if you are a Christian, if you have been saved, it is because God has graciously united you to Christ and you dwell in him while he dwells in you. We are justified in union with Christ, point number three. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in him, union with Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So by being united with Christ, that is how we might experience or become the righteousness of God. Our justification must not simply be seen as a legal declaration of our innocence, although it certainly does include that. It also necessarily begins with our being united to Jesus. For years and years, I used a courtroom illustration when sharing the gospel. I still do on occasion. And when I would explain this courtroom situation, I would say, well, imagine that you're sitting before the throne of God. You're sitting in God's courtroom and, and he is sitting there as judge over you. And he is talking to you about the things that you have done. And he would say something to the extent of, why should I allow you into... Uh, why should I uh, free you from your sin? Why should I allow you to go free? And um, typically what I will say is, I, you know, the, the person sitting there, whether it's me or another person, however I'm presenting the conversation, will defend themselves initially. But the Christian should say, no, no, wait, hold on. I am not representing myself. And then they will, will call for another. They will ask for another representative to come in and to stand as their advocate before them and to argue their case, and that advocate being the son of the judge, Jesus himself. Now, the problem with that is when we are judged, we are going to be seen not as ourselves calling an advocate, but God will actually see his own son there because we are united to him. Our justification is not just a legal declaration that I am innocent. It does include that. But it is more than that. It is saying, I am one with Christ, the advocate himself. So when, I, when we understand that, we must understand that it is indeed Jesus that is seen rather than us when we are standing before the throne. I won't stand there in that sense. Jesus will be there on my behalf. Allow me to offer another example from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, union with Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But found by who? Who is Paul concerned about here? Paul is saying that being found in Christ is what gives him his alien righteousness. Being in Jesus 
is what gives him this righteousness. Let me break down all of human history this way. There's many ways you could divide epochs and eras and dispensations, if you will. But what you must see is that in reality, there are only two major events in all of history, Adam and Jesus. Every single human being that has ever been born begins in Adam. He is the initial part of your history. You are biologically from his line and spiritually you are from his line. However, if you are not in Jesus, or if you are not in Adam, you are transitioned into Christ. We are in one or the other. One or the other will represent us. We must understand that when you stand before the throne, you are condemned in Adam, but you find life and forgiveness in Christ. So we can mine diamonds from this point for hours, but let's move on now to the fourth aspect of union with Christ. We are sanctified through our union with Christ. Now, there are multiple examples at this point. In fact, I would consider that all of the examples of sanctification are in regards to union with Christ. But let's just look at one. John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5. It says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. It is impossible for you to bear the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit of repentance, or the fruit of peaceable righteousness that the Bible speaks about, unless you are abiding in Christ and He is abiding in you. This is perhaps one of the most intimate glimpses into the doctrine of union with Christ in relation to our sanctification. When we are in Him... There is a natural pull, like a magnetism, that draws us to God. It causes us to desire Him and desire to be like Him. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy, and it only occurs when we are found in the One who actually is holy. We're going to come back to that a little bit at the conclusion when we consider application. So let's move now to point number five, which is we persevere in the life of faith in union with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What keeps us persevering? Well, according to this, it is the love of God. The love of God holds us close. But how is it possible that a sinful man like me or a sinful person like you can experience the ongoing, uninterrupted, indivisible, unbreakable love of God? How can that love be set upon us? Because I am in Christ and the Father loves the Son. Therefore, the Father shows love to me in his Son. My perseverance, my finishing the race fully relies on the fact that I am bound together with the Son of God, and I am therefore joined with eternal loving bonds that have always been shared within the Trinity. God loves me like he loves his Son. Again, we will come back to this again during our application, so let's move now to point six. We are even said to die in Christ. Revelation fourteen thirteen says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 
Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labor, labors, for their deeds follow them. Now, if we stop and we think about this for a moment, it is a very odd thing to say that God would describe someone who is dying as dying in the Lord. Although this phrase, in the Lord, correlates with dies as a Christian or dies as in a saved state or died after they had become justified, it does say that. It does mean those things, but it means more than those things. It literally means that they have died physically while they were spiritually bound together with the God-man Jesus. They died in a state where they were inseparably, inseparably bonded to the second person of the Trinity. When you die, if you are a Christian, you do not have to fear the curse of death because you are cloaked in the mysterious and majestic way of the person of Jesus Christ. You are covered in him. This leads us very nicely into our seventh aspect of union with Christ in regards to our salvation experience, that we shall be raised with Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For in Adam, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now let me ask you a question. Does this verse indicate that all people will be saved? Is this a universalist text? Because if we believe that everyone was affected by the curse of sin in Adam, how is it that not everyone will experience the gift of life in Christ? The simple answer is this. Only those who are called to be in Christ will be made alive together with Christ. This passage that is speaking here explains that all who are in Adam will die and all who are in Christ will live. But all of us are in Adam, as it explains in Romans chapter 5. We are born that way. Not all are in Christ. A simple picture of this can be found in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, which says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, there's a lot of audacity in that statement. Paul is actually indicating that Christians are somehow currently able to seek heavenly things. How is that possible? Look, I'm, I'm a physical person standing in a physical room with a physical box in front of me and a microphone and lights and cameras and all of these things in an empty room with just me and Ben. And as I am preaching and proclaiming this to you, I am a physical person in physical space in time. How am I supposed to seek things that are not on this planet, things that are in heaven? Paul seems to expect the, the people of Colossae to understand that they have been raised with Christ already because they are united to Christ and therefore they are able to live in light of eternity. You can live like we talked about in wisdom from Ecclesiastes because you can set your sights on heaven and live for Jesus now because you are united to him. This is why in Ephesians, Paul tells us that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Point number eight. Now we come to the last of our aspects of union with Christ that we'll focus on today. We shall be eternally glorified with Christ. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. First, I want you to just soak in that for a minute. Soak in the glory of the fact that when Christ who is your life appears, you will be with him in glory. The fact is, it describes Christ as your life. Your life 
is no longer what it was before you were saved. Your life has been transformed. You have been given a new life, as it were. Uh, we're going to consider in a couple weeks 2 Corinthians 5.17. And in that passage, it tells us that we are a new creation. There is something radically different and unique about us now, unlike we used to be. There is a transformation that has taken place. We are now with Christ in such a way that we can say He is our life. Going back to Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But Paul doesn't stop. God's love for us does not merely stop at justifying us or sanctifying us or giving us faith or causing us to persevere. God actually allows us to experience glory as we are found in Christ. We will appear with him in glory. Now, as I said previously, this doctrine is really rich, and we're going to only scratch the surface. But our two applications this morning are going to be that union with Christ should lead us to, first of all, personal holiness, and second of all, personal worship. Let's first explore how it leads us to holiness. A couple of weeks ago, I taught in the Facebook Bible studies... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Now that is a magisterial text about the humility of Christ, condescending, being made in the form of a servant. And, and that passage is one of the greatest examples that Christ has ever put down in our text for us to see the, the majesty of Jesus and the great honor that we have to have a king who would lower himself in such a way to love us and to show affection to us. And we see that he was brought low, and then he was um, honored by God the Father and exalted by the Lord. So what we need to see from that passage is that it is also teaching us that we are to have that kind of mind, that kind of humility in ourselves. But it just doesn't tell us to do that. In fact, it's impossible for us to do that. When it says to have this mind in yourselves, if he didn't have the next phrase, we would be hopeless because you cannot humble yourself like Jesus, and neither can I, unless God helps us. That is why it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We don't have time to fully explore this today, but let that sink in for just a second. The fact is that you have been united with Christ, which means that you are able to share in the mind of Christ, as it would say in 1 Corinthians. We are able to think like him because we are in him. Now, unbelievers cannot do what Paul is commanding us to do here. They cannot do it because they do not have the mind of Christ unless they are first in Christ. The New Testament epistles explain that when you find almost, uh, when you find a command, it is almost always accompanied by a statement which underscores the fact that you can't obey unless you are in Christ. Why are Paul's epistles littered with more than 200 of these little phrases? Is because every time he's telling you to do something, he is telling you to do it in Christ, under the power of Christ, and with the authority of Christ. These passages stand like eternal billboards to us that we are weak, we are fallen, we are frail, we are finite, we are helpless, but he is strong and he is able. So let's consider a specific passage which speaks to our need to live a holy life. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, which says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 
For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, Marcus Johnson writes about this passage and says, Paul thinks that bodily union with a prostitute is shamefully unholy because believers are already in a union with Jesus Christ that includes their bodies. Our union with Christ is so intensely personal that when we sin with our bodies, we are bringing shame upon ourselves because we are, in a very genuine and eternal way, one with Jesus. So let's argue now from the greater to the lesser. He speaks about being joined to a prostitute, but what if we do something else with our bodies? What if we do something else with the gift that God has given to us? What if we use our tongue to speak lies or to tear someone down or to gossip? What if we use our hands to steal or to cheat on our taxes? What if we use inappropriate words on Facebook? We're not speaking them, but we're typing them with our fingers. What if we use our eyes to indulge in pornography? What if we use our, our teeth and our stomachs to overindulge in the good gift of food that God has given to us? What if we use our minds to entertain, entertain violent and aggressive thoughts? Are we not also bringing shame to the God with whom we are united? We are united with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ should cause us to run away from sin and to cling closely to Jesus for holiness and sanctification. When children are young, sometimes parents will try to manipulate them into obedience by saying, Santa Claus is watching. Uh, you know, if you sing some of the Christmas songs, that's ultimately about what they're about. You better not shout, you pout, you better not cry. Why not? Why should you not shout? I'm telling you why. Because Santa's coming to town. So you better obey, kid. In fact, there was a book that was written a couple years ago called Elf on the Shelf. And this was designed as a, a way for parents to have a, at least a month, maybe two, of manipulating their kids. It was a book where they would talk about how there was an informant elf that would sit on the shelf at your house and he would take notes to take back to Santa to tell you how bad you are as a child. And the parents would purchase this elf and they would put it on a place in their, in their, in their kid's room and then when their kid is acting up, they would say, hey, 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 that elf over there is watching you. It's manipulation, nothing more. But what you need to see here is that Jesus is not trying to manipulate us into holiness. He is not trying to force us to, by saying, oh, I'm looking down from a cloud observing what you're doing. Many people will say, well, God is watching you. It's deeper than that. It goes deeper because Jesus is not just peering down at you. Jesus is in you and you are hidden in him. So when you sin, you do so in the face of Christ who is joined to you eternally. So brothers and sisters, let this lead us to our knees in repentance. And it should lead us to have a life of personal holiness. Now our second application is really the same as the first, just a different angle. Because holiness Proper holiness is just worship. It is just living for God. But I want to consider the doctrine of union with Christ and how it should lead us in personal worship in terms of the way that it navigates our heart. In John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23, Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays these words. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's preaching. He's praying for you and me. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also might be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now this is mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing because Christ's intention in taking on flesh and living a perfect life and dying on the cross was this, that we might be one with Christ so that we might enter into the love that the Trinity has shared for all eternity. So that we can experience the showering of God's affection forever. The greatest application that I could ever give you, the greatest point that I could ever make right now, is that if you are in Christ, you are to give yourselves over to the daily meditation of constantly focusing your attention on this reality. That God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to join himself to you. And what could be better than that? That he has made you one with Christ so that your love, that his love for you might be eternally poured out. Now, every time you read the Bible and you see those words in Christ or in him or with Christ, pause and stop and be amazed that Jesus would join himself to you. Please understand, we do not receive Christ in this way because we are deserving. No, he in great love has shed his blood so that he might bring us into his family, so that we might be united with him. And let that lead your heart to worship and let that lead your life to be modeled after the life of Jesus himself. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you that in Jesus we are, we are loved. Lord, I thank you that we are made one with him by your great uh, plan of sacrifice. Lord, I pray that as we hear these words, we would be convinced deeply in our souls that we are to live righteous lives. And that we would be convinced deeply in our souls that every moment, every aspect of our actions and thoughts are supposed to be worshipful because Jesus is with us and in us and we are in him. Lord, I pray that as we consider this concept of union with Christ, that it would be understandable and as people have heard it, that they would be able to categorize rightly. But Lord, even if not every theological I is dotted and T is crossed, Lord, I pray that the people would really understand Jesus and understand his love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.